I am Pastor Michael. I'm uh, returning from an extended break from ministry work. It's really good to be back. I feel deeply restored by my sabbatical. It was really miraculously wonderful. Um, I shared a lot about it in the newsletter, but I want to share with you one little snapshot of my sabbatical. Uh, one of the things that my family and I did a lot of is spend time in nature. And uh, we went on camping trips with uh, families in the church. And I remember this one night. I was um, in the tent, lying in my sleeping bag. I had brought a book. Reading books is my happy activity. And uh, I remember it so vividly. I was reading about Gen Z. These are people who were born after 1995. So these are people right out of college. And just the deep... um, skepticism and cynicism they have about the connection between love and sex, and this is where you get the expression catching feelings. And uh, as I was reading that, I was just so happy, right, because I was like, oh, it's so interesting. And as I was reading it, you know, I had my little nightlight on, I paused, and I looked over, and Christina and the boys were sleeping in their sleeping bag, you know, the chill of the night air, I was listening to the sounds of nature at night, and I just felt deliriously happy, you know? It was just this wonderful moment. I felt so grateful to God, and I'm so grateful to you guys that you gave me this extended break. So thank you guys. Um, Let's go into the sermon. So we're looking at John chapter... 11, verses 45 through 53, we're jumping back into our sermon series. And actually, we're kind of jumping into the middle of a story here. If you remember, uh, in the first half of John chapter 11, is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. And so this is the aftermath of that. So let me read it for you. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that is, raise Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is the word of God. So, this passage is answering the question, why was Jesus put to death? And the writer, the gospel writer John, being a masterful storyteller, gives us the answer at two levels. On the first level, 
the story is telling us that Jesus died because he had become a threat to the Roman Empire. And so it has to do with politics, it has to do with, you know, the power dynamics of first century Palestine. That's the first level, but there's a second level. There's a deeper and um, more ultimate level, and the answer there is that Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so you have these two dramas On the surface level, you have this human drama with human actors, and they're conspiring. There's political intrigue between the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Romans, as we'll see. And this is the human drama that we can perceive with the human eye. But what John is telling us is that underneath that human drama, invisible to the plain eye, is a divine drama. And in the divine drama, God in Christ is saving the world. And what John is telling us is that is the real thing that is going on. That's the real story underneath the surface level story. And so here are my three points. This is my outline. Number one, we're going to look at the two level answer that John gives us and the complex interplay between the two levels. Secondly, we're going to see the problem with the divine drama, the divine part of the answer, which is the problem with substitutionary atonement. I wrote there the problem with substitution. Please write in if if you're taking notes. The problem with substitutionary atonement. And then finally, we're going to look at the life that God demands. How then shall we live if this is true? So first, the two answers. So... If you look at the first half of John chapter 11, which we looked at several months ago, you'll remember that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And it was a dramatic scene, right? Jesus is standing there in front of Lazarus' tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And after four days of being in the tomb, Lazarus comes out, his body wrapped in his burial bandages, a dramatic scene, right? And in verse 45 of our passage, it tells us that many, many in the crowd, when they saw this miracle, they believed in Jesus. But there were some who reported it to the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the priests in Jerusalem. And in verse 47, it tells us that they gathered together in council. Notice the word council there is in capital letters. And that's because it's actually a technical term. It's the Greek word Sanhedrin. Now, who are the Sanhedrin? You need to understand a little bit of the historical context. At this time, the land of Israel, the Jewish people are under Roman occupation. This had been going on for 90 years now, ever since Pompey had marched into Jerusalem with his legions. Now, the Romans were not interested in direct rule too troublesome, too much of a headache, local customs, religious sensibilities, it just wasn't worth it. So what the Romans did instead, very savvy, is every territory that they would conquer, they would establish these indigenous councils. They would select the the elites from the local people, basically making them collaborators, set them up in these councils to rule the population for them as proxies, 
And for the Jewish people, that was the Sanhedrin. In fact, the Sanhedrin is an invention. It's a creation of the Roman Empire. And so therefore, do you understand, right? Just to be clear about this, the Sanhedrin is the puppet government of the Roman Empire. Everyone sitting on the Sanhedrin was therefore very wealthy, very powerful, because they were paid off by the Romans. But you see, they were in a very insecure position. Their hold on power was very tenuous because they're in this very difficult mediating position between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people who hate the Romans. And so what happens then is the Sanhedrin began to receive reports about this growing movement up north in Galilee around this figure named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the Sanhedrin had seen this kind of thing before. And so what they do is they try to discredit him. They send up agents to pose to Jesus these impossible wedge questions so that either way Jesus answers, it would end up splintering his movement. But what happens instead is the movement keeps growing. And it keeps growing in large part because of Jesus' miracles, which the Sanhedrin frankly admit, right? They say in verse 47, this man performs many signs. And the most spectacular of the signs, the, the, the most amazing of all the miracles, was Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after four days in full public view. And not only that, in Bethany. Bethany is not in Galilee. It's actually a suburb of Jerusalem. It's two miles east of Jerusalem, So it's happening now in the south, in Judea. The movement has gained a foothold in the political and religious capital of Israel. And so the Sanhedrin is in full-on panic mode. And their worry is that this movement will eventually become a a full-blown uprising. And they know... Their, their, their worry is that if rebellion should break out, then the hammer of Rome will come down with all of its brutality. And actually, that's exactly what happened several decades later. In AD 70, there was a massive revolt. In the history books, this is called the First Jewish Revolt. And Rome sends in her legions. Jerusalem is reduced to a smoldering ruin. The temple is destroyed. The people are wiped out. And Jerusalem never recovers. The temple is never rebuilt after that. And so the Sanhedrin, they're not being paranoid about this. Okay, This is a very real possibility. And so they're very vexed about this situation. What are they going to do? And at this point, Caiaphas steps in. Now, we know a great deal about Caiaphas, not only from the Bible, but from sources outside the Bible, namely Josephus. We know that Caiaphas was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the chief priest, the high priest of the temple complex. And we know that he had held this position for 16 years, a remarkable tenure. And so this guy is a political survivor. He's shrewd. He's ruthless. Okay, That's the only way you can survive in that kind of situation. And he comes into the situation. He he says, listen, gentlemen, the solution is so simple. It's staring you right in front of your nose. All we have to do 
is kill this man Jesus. Except he doesn't quite say it like that, does he? Instead, he provides a kind of cover. Right? He provides a moral justification for the killing. And in verse 50, and verse 50, by the way, is the key verse. We're going to spend a lot of time on this verse. Verse 50 is the key to understanding everything that's going on. In verse 50, he says, For it is better that one man should die for the people than uh, not that the whole nation should perish. Those are his actual words, okay? What he's basically saying is, we just have to make Jesus the sacrificial lamb to save Israel. Now, immediately, alarm, theological alarm bell should be ringing in your heads, okay? Because that sounds amazing, right? There's all these connections and resonances with all parts of the Bible. But before we get to that, before we look at this divine drama that is undulating underneath this this story, I want us to pause and reflect on what Caiaphas is doing here for a moment. Because you need to know that Caiaphas is not saying this with some kind of lofty meaning in mind. Because as he's saying verse 50, and it's important to get the tone right on this, as he's saying verse 50, he is laughing with cynicism. He does not believe for a moment that Jesus' death has any higher purpose. Jesus, in his mind, is just another disposable, expendable human being. Just another bump on the road as he consolidates his own power and wealth. And I think what John is doing here is so deep. Because here he's showing us in miniature is everything that is wrong with the world. Here you have this innocent man, Jesus, and he is not leading an armed insurrection against Rome. And yet the Sanhedrin condemns him to death. No fair trial, no due process. They just decide to end his life. And what John is saying in our story is, are you shocked by this? Don't be naive. This is the way the world works. The strong eat the weak. The powerful trample on the powerless. The ruthless exploit the innocent for their own gains. Many of you in this room in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. And your life feels like you're in this giant chessboard. And you're this little pawn in the middle of the chessboard. And all of these pieces are moving. All of these larger forces are arrayed against you. And it feels like your life doesn't matter. I want you to take deep comfort in this passage. And I want you to notice the strange providence and the deep wisdom of God here. Because in this world, it seems like evil has a free reign, does it not? Everywhere you look, you see injustice. Everywhere you look, evil men are plotting evil deeds. Caiaphas, in our passage, is breathing out his murderous plots. 
And then we get to verse 51. And verse 51 is the turning of the tide. I think verse 51 is one of the most significant, one of the most profound verses in the Bible because it tells us that Caiaphas was not speaking of his own accord. Do you understand? So that as Caiaphas was speaking, his very words became the very words of God. So that in that moment, Caiaphas was speaking not as some venal apparatchik gathering his own position, but he was speaking in that moment as the prophet of God. For this is the very reason why Jesus Christ came, to lay down his life for the sheep. John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what's going on here. You see, that's the divine drama percolating, reverberating underneath the swirling actions of human players and this human drama that seems to us so overwhelming. And I want you to notice that God executes his plan of salvation not in spite of Caiaphas' scheming, but in and through Caiaphas' scheming. Do you understand? God is not like trying to maneuver around Caiaphas, but in God's hands, Caiaphas becomes the very instrument of God's will. Because have no doubt about this, without Caiaphas, there would be no cross. And so listen to this. The evil of Caiaphas didn't defeat God's plan, it accomplished God's plan. And if that is how God is at work here, why do you think God is also not doing the same throughout human history and in your own life? And let me get very practical here. When something terrible happens in your life, when you experience some financial disaster or some setback at work or if there's some kind of injury or illness that happens to you or there's some sort of conflict or dissolution of relationships, very distressing, and and all these terrible things are happening to you, how do you know, how do you know that it's bad? How do you know that in the end it's going to turn out for your destruction and doom? How do you know that? One of my favorite quotes in Tolkien, Gandalf says, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. You see, if you give your life to God, you must also give him the right to operate in a way that's going to seem mysterious to you. And because he loves you, your life at times is going to seem like it's taking this terminal detour. (laughs) It's going to seem like your life is just going into the ditch. But you need to understand you are exactly where you're supposed to be. You're exactly in the right spot in the journey that God is taking you for his glory and for your ultimate joy. And so that's the first point of the story. There are two dramas going on. There's the human drama where evil men are scheming. But underneath that, superseding that, is a divine drama. God is at work for your salvation. So, let's go to the second point. There's a problem. 
there's a problem with the divine answer that Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. And I want to look at this more closely. So let's look again at verse 50. Verse 50 is the key to the whole passage. He says, It is better, Caiaphas says this, speaking on behalf of God, Caiaphas says, It is better that one man should die than the whole nation should perish. Now, in theology, this is called substitutionary atonement. Atonement means payment for sins. And people have a big problem with substitutionary atonement. They have a problem with the atonement part of it, and they have a problem with the substitution part of it, okay? So let's take a look at these problems, one um, each in turn. So first, uh, atonement, okay? So the, the objection is this. Why does there need to be an atonement in the first place? In other words, why can't God just forgive us? Why does he demand this punishment for our sins? Because if God is a God of love, then he would just let it go and forgive us. And the answer to that is, If God just forgives us, then what sort of God would he be? Because the underlying premise here is it goes to the character of God who would just let sin go. Let me give you an illustration. Several uh, months ago, there was this um, news story, this huge scandal about Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein was a very wealthy man, multi-billionaire, and he he was arrested on the charge that over his life, he had sexually abused dozens of underaged girls, right? Terrible crime, just reprehensible. And then it was revealed that actually, 10 years prior to this, he had been arrested in Florida for the exact same charges, on the exact same crime. And what had happened is that because of Jeffrey Epstein's powerful position and influence and wealth, the prosecutors gave him a sweetheart deal, plea deal, where basically he was let go free without any jail time at all. And when this was um, revealed, there was this huge public outcry, right? People were outraged by this because people were saying, what sort of prosecutor would just let a criminal go free like that? And so the question for us is, what sort of God would just overlook evil and would just let sin go? And here I want to be very careful I want to be very precise with my words. Because in the case of the prosecutors, we can criticize them for being too lenient with the law because the prosecutors have sworn to uphold the law. right? They are servants of the law. But is that what is going on with God? And nobody has helped me to um, understand this better than John Stott in his masterful book, The Cross of Christ, which I read over the summer, blew my mind away. And John Stott says this. He says, on this issue, we have to go back to first principles. 
is the reason why God cannot just forgive us, is the reason for that because he is constrained by the law? Is it because he is bound by the law and he he doesn't have discretion to, to, to make changes? If that is true, then God would cease to be God. Because what that would mean is that the law stands above God. It would mean that the law is greater than and more powerful than God. Then God would not be God. And therefore, if it is the case that there is no law that is above God, in fact, it's the other way around. Whatever God says, that is the law. And so if there is no law above God, then why can't God just forgive us? Why can't he just let it go? It's his decision. It's his call. And the answer is God cannot just forgive us, not because he is constrained by the law, but because he is constrained by himself. Listen to what John Stott writes. God must be true to himself. And it is out of the perfection of his nature, for God cannot contradict himself that he is opposed to evil. And so he must destroy evil. His face is set against evil. Otherwise, right and wrong would cease to have any meaning. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, if God in himself has no problem with evil, if he winks at evil, if he tolerates evil, because God is the ground of all being, because he is the source of all reality, that would mean right and wrong, good and evil, these are meaningless categories because it doesn't have any substance to them. It doesn't come from the very being of God. And that would mean that we live in a universe of moral chaos. We would live in a world where God is indifferent to evil. See, we're in deep waters now. If you read throughout the Bible, God says there's this refrain that comes up over and over. He says, for my own name's sake. He says, for my own name's sake I do this. Now in the ancient world, your name revealed your character. It was the very essence of your being. And so when God says, it is for my name's sake that I do this, it's for my name that I do this, he is saying, out of my very being, out of the very essence of who I am, I abhor evil. And in my wrath, I will not rest until it is destroyed. And so because God cannot forsake his nature, he cannot just forgive. And so Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, is an immutable law because it comes from the very being of God. Now this presents an enormous problem for us. For how can a holy God countenance sinners like you and me? And the answer the Bible tells us is that God has provided for us a substitute. Now this raises a different problem. And here we're on the substitution part of substitutionary atonement. And the question is, how is it fair for God to punish someone else in our place? That's the objection that many people have, right? How can God transfer our punishment to someone else? Let me give you an illustration. 
So I have two boys, Judah and Noah. Suppose one day Noah misbehaves, right? He does this terrible misdeed, and I catch him in the process. And Noah cries out, Daddy, forgive me. And I say to him, there has to be a penalty. The wages of sin is death. And so what I do is I grab Judah, who had nothing to do with it. And as Judah is howling in protest and tears, I start spanking Judah in front of Noah until my wrath is spent. And then when I am done, Judah is crying in the corner. I say to Noah, you're forgiven. If I did that, what would you say? Would you say, how beautiful? <laughs> that is just how I always imagine the gospel. No. You would say, that is some messed up, man. You would say, you are a terrible father. That is borderline child abuse. Listen to me. How is that any different than what the Father does to the Son, Jesus Christ? Here's the answer. The problem with the analogy is that Judah, Noah, and I, each of us, are independent people. And I cannot transfer the problem that I have with Noah onto Judah. That wouldn't be fair even if Judah should willingly volunteer to take Noah's punishment, that still doesn't make it right. And so here is the answer. The God of the Bible is a triune God. He is one God, one in being, one divine nature, and he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is an absolute, indivisible oneness to God. And at the same time, there is a distinct threeness to God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. It is beyond human understanding, but this is what the Bible teaches us. We have to hold on to it. Now, why is that important? Listen to me. Without this, without this, you cannot understand substitutionary atonement. And listen to me now, okay, because this is really going to cook your noodle. When God sends His Son to the cross to die for our sins, He is not sending an independent third party. He is sending Himself. Do you understand? He is not transferring the punishment for sins onto someone else. He is putting it upon himself. And I want you to know that this is how all forgiveness works. How all forgiveness works. If someone wrongs you, and I mean they really wrongs you, someone really betrays you, someone really harms you, in a deeply significant way, 
you can't just let it go. You can't just shrug your shoulders, you know, and, and, and throw it away as if it didn't really happen. There is a deep sense that there's a debt. There's an obligation. There's a payment to be paid. There has to be an atonement. Now, in that situation, you can do one of two things. You can either make the other person pay. You can make them suffer. You can make them pay for what they did. Or you can forgive them, in which case you pay. You pay the price. You, in effect, suffer in their place. Now, when God sees our sins, when God sees all the evil that has been done in this world, when he sees the cruelty, when he sees the selfishness of the human race, he can't just let it go. He can't just shrug his shoulders and say, ah, it doesn't matter. Our sins cry out for justice. God cannot deny himself his righteous nature. So what does God do? God can either make us pay and then we perish. Or God can forgive us, but then he must pay. Do you understand? And in his son, he did pay. I want you to understand that because God is triune, when the son was dying on the cross, it was not just the son who was in agony. It was not just the son who was suffering while the father was watching, insulated from the pain. Don't you understand? The father was in agony too. The father was suffering on the cross as well. That's the mystery of the Trinity. And so this is the answer to the problem. God, in his triune nature, listen to me, both exacts the penalty for our sins as the judge and he bears the penalty for our sins as our substitute. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God satisfies himself. He satisfies his righteous nature by substituting himself for us. That's the gospel. Why does he do this? This is a whole other sermon, but God does this because he loves us. Verse 52, we are his children, and he will not rest until we are safe in his arms. So that leads me to my third point. How then shall we live? If the gospel is substitutionary atonement, if the gospel is the self-substitution of God, what does that mean for us now? Several uh, weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast in which uh, David Brooks was being interviewed. David Brooks um, is one of my favorite writers He's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Recently, um, it came out that he, has, he had converted, after, year, after his whole life being a secular Jew, he converted to Christianity. And as I was listening to him tell the story, I, I burst into tears because he's one of my favorite people that I've never met, you know. And now he's a brother to me in Christ. And he was talking on this um, podcast, and he was making this observation about American Christianity. And it's so poignant 
He says, it's his observation that most people who call themselves Christians treat God like he's some kind of tanning lamp. See, most people want God in their lives as a kind of warm glow to make them feel good, but doesn't really make any demands on them. But David Brooks points out, he says that when you actually read the Bible, what astonishes, what astonishes you is the high demands that Scripture calls on you. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 5.15, listen to this. Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. You see, the substitutionary death of Christ places a demand on you. Or listen to 1 Corinthians 6.20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Do you understand the costly price that God paid? And maybe one of the reasons why so many of us have these anemic Christian lives is because we don't understand the price. Several years ago, I was reading um, a book by Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge is a, she's a theologian, uh, Anglican theologian, and she wrote this book called The Crucifixion. Excellent book. And she's looking at all the accounts of the crucifixion. And she gets to John chapter 19, verse 34, and she notices this rather curious detail And the the setup to this is that the Roman soldiers, um, because of Jewish sensibilities about the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was going to begin um, Friday evening at sundown, right? So remember, Jesus is crucified Friday. The Roman soldiers are ordered to bring down the bodies for the Jewish Sabbath. And so what they do, standard procedure, is they go to the two thieves and they break their legs, because what, what happens is that um, the prisoners need their legs to be able to lift themselves up to breathe. So immediately, they suffocate and they die. When the soldiers get to Jesus, they notice he's already dead. And to confirm this, one of the Roman soldiers thrusts a spear into Jesus' side, and in verse 34, it says, "...at once there came out blood and water." And Fleming Rutledge, uh, she makes note that this is a rather strange detail. It doesn't, that doesn't normally occur. And so what's going on here? And she says the, the explanation from medical experts for this is that Jesus had gone through what is called hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic shock is when your body goes through extreme trauma from very low blood volume, very low blood pressure. And so this is what was going on. You have to remember that before the cross, Jesus was first subjected to Roman scourging. It's a very brutal practice. What happens is the prisoner is stripped naked, he's tied to a post, and then a Roman soldier flays his back with the infamous cat of nine tails, right? which is this multi-pronged whip 39 times the prisoner is struck. And it produces these deep, stripe-like lacerations. Now, usually, the prisoner is then set free. 
And that was, in fact, Pilate's intention. But because of public pressure, because the Sanhedrin had whipped up this mob sentiment, Pilate was forced to go further than he had wanted. And so he orders then Jesus to be crucified. Now, usually the Romans didn't double up these two punishments because it's too brutal. The prisoner wouldn't last very long. But they do this. And so as a result of this massive blood loss, first from Roman scourging and then from the trauma of the cross, from the nails and the hands and the feet, Jesus was experiencing critically low blood volume. And as a result, his heart was struggling to pump enough blood through his body. And one of the effects of this is that it produces extreme thirst because the body is just screaming to replenish fluids. This is why Jesus cried out, I thirst. And so under those extraordinary, extreme conditions, what must have happened, the medical experts speculate, is that the heart ruptured releasing a large volume of blood and water, which was subsequently released when his side was punctured. And when I read that, I started to cry. Because I thought, what that means is that as he was bearing the weight of the world's sins, the heart of God literally burst apart. No other religion says this. No other religion says anything close to this. Because only Christianity says the love of God is not some abstract principle. God is not just up in the clouds, in the heavens, wishing us well. But the Bible says that God came down and he became a human being And he laid down his life to save us from our sins. And he endured the brutality of Roman crucifixion. That's the gospel. Doesn't that stun you? Doesn't that fill you with marvel and wonder? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. The only right response to the love of God is to love Him back. That's the only way to live with any integrity if you call yourself a Christian. Otherwise, you don't understand the cross. You don't understand the price that was paid. And so you have to give Him your whole life, every inch of it, no negotiation. No reservation. Let's pray. Almighty God, how shall we neglect so great a salvation? And we confess that so often we we like the benefits of a relationship with you, We want help when we run into trouble. We want to have spiritual sense of peace and well-being. 
but we resist giving you our whole life. Enable us, empower us to respond rightly. Help us to understand that we love you because you first loved us. And I pray that the incredible, costly love of Jesus Christ on the cross would be impressed upon our hearts and we would worship you and love you back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.